Welcome to Beyond the Ring. Our focus is connecting youths and young professionals with the energy sector. Join the youth government energy team with host Shane Wilson having conversation with movers and shakers in the local energy sector. Episode 1, we will be having a conversation with Mr. Vikas Supersad from Shell. We'd like our listeners to know that this episode was recorded in November 2021 during the COP26 conference. Welcome, Vikash. Can you give our listeners a brief overview of your career within the energy sector? Thanks very much for having me, Shane. It is really a pleasure for me to share a bit of my experience in the energy industry in the hope that it might answer some of the questions in the minds of your listeners or perhaps inspire new ideas in the next batch of young energy professionals in Trinidad and the wider Caribbean. So about me. I'm a D-lead in Royal Dutch Shell's or, or simply Shell's central deal-making team where I currently support oil and gas exploration deals. To explain this a bit more, let's take Trinidad as an example where we have companies like Shell, BP, BHP and others that produce natural gas. Now many years before production can actually start, we must first find these hydrocarbons by drilling exploration wells either in onshore or offshore acreage. And for a company to get access to a country's acreage like Trinidad, the D-Lead prepares a bid to participate in what is essentially an auction that is run by the government. And at the end of the process, the government will award the rights to a company to explore that acreage. Uh, or maybe to a group of companies, and hence the lead will negotiate partnerships with other energy companies as well, either to bid together or sometimes even after the other company has won, which we call farming into someone else's acreage. For example, a recent deal that I worked on was one that took Shell into uh, offshore Suriname, where exploration activities are currently taking place. But before this, I worked on other deals such as the Dragon cross-border gas project with Venezuela, and I previously led the 112 megawatt solar project that is currently being developed in Trinidad with BP and LightSource BP uh, together with Shell. Now, deal-making is an exciting career, but not every opportunity that comes your way turns into a successful deal. The public only hears about the deals that actually close, but in fact, a good portion of a deal-maker's time is spent on deals that, that don't happen. And this requires patience and resilience as a deal maker. And I think the more skilled you are, the earlier you are able to recognize that a deal isn't going to happen. And in fact, it takes a bit of courage to, to pull the plug early. And that could really be tough, especially if there's a lot of excitement and, and public interest in the deal. But I had I had no idea I was going to end up here. And in fact, my, my career started with a bit of disappointment. When I graduated from the University of the West Indies in 2002, trains two and three of Atlantic LNG were just starting up and the energy industry in Trinidad was expanding rapidly, a very exciting place to be. All of my friends were moving to multinational energy companies and to the Point Lisa's industrial estate, but I, I didn't land a job in energy and in fact started working in the lab at Unilever or Lever Brothers as it was called. Um, one of the world's largest uh, manufacturers and distributors of fast-moving consumer goods. I, I was still keen on moving to the energy industry, and I didn't really see this as a setback. Of course, taking this in stride while learning as much as I could about that industry. And within three years, I worked my way up to production manager. 
And by 2005, I was leading a team of over 200 staff and, and contractors. Now, fortunately, Shell's downstream business in Point Lisas wanted someone in their planning department, and I moved over there in 2006. Um, shortly thereafter, I had a stint in Mexico, then moved back to um, Trinidad as a planning manager for Colombia, Venezuela, and the, the West Indies. And I spent some time as well as the operations manager for, for the Trinidad facility. But I was always interested in the commercial side of the business. So I followed up my chemical engineering degree with an MBA in, in 2012. And soon after that, Shell bought into Atlantic LNG in 2014 by acquiring 25% of Repsol's interest. So I was fortunate to join the midstream commercial team where we managed Shell's interest in Atlantic LNG. And then two years later, um, when Shell bought BG, acquiring another 25% of Atlantic LNG in the process, I had the opportunity to move to the upstream commercial team where I did a bit of strategy as, as well as the deals that I mentioned before with Venezuela and the renewable energy. Um, now, at first I thought that my time in Shell's downstream business, where I spent about eight years, that it was more of a hindrance to, to somebody joining the upstream commercial space. But apparently the senior leaders in, in Shell didn't see it that way. And I was very fortunate to be appointed as a business advisor to two consecutive Shell vice presidents over the period of four years. Uh, firstly, Louis Prado, who was the chairman for Shell Trinidad and Shell Venezuela. And then to, to Derek Hudson, who we all know as a sort of stalwart in the local energy landscape. Um, I had a tremendous time working with them, learning so much from them, and of course, learning so much from many other fantastic colleagues in Trinidad uh, before moving to London in 2019, where I am today. Wow, Vikash, thanks for a great brief overview of the various roles that you've held uh, during your career within the sector. And, you know, while we're on the topic of career, you know, one of the things I like to follow up now in our conversation is what advice you can offer our listeners, you know, looking to develop their career. And I'd also like to hear from your perspective, you know, especially looking at probably developing their career within our local energy sector in Trinidad and Tobago. So let me start by sharing a short story of a conversation that I had with a young man recently, 25 years old. He said, hey, Vikash, what do you think about following up my master's degree with a PhD in analytical chemistry. I said, wow, that's that's excellent. That's impressive. Tell me some more. Why do you want to do a PhD in analytical chemistry? And he said, well, my mom always wanted me to. I said, stop right there. It's clear that your mom wants this PhD more than you want it. And if I think to myself, the same probably would have applied to me. If I could go back in time to high school or just entering university and ask young Vikash, based not just on the activities that I like, but also the things that I think I'm good at, which industry would I have liked to enter? And it probably would have been something along the lines of investment banking or venture capital or finance. Now, that is with almost 20 years of experience speaking now. But I think it's the first question that any young person coming out of school or just pursuing a first degree needs to ask themselves. Do you want to be in the energy industry and why? In my case, with a bit of strategy and some good fortune, 
I was able to find an area of the energy industry which makes the most of my strengths, dealing with various stakeholders, managing complexity, negotiations, which are things I also really enjoy. And thus I was able to find a place in deal making and new business development, which thankfully in a large integrated energy company like Shell, you sort of have this ability to move around into a host of different roles throughout your career. So to go back to the story a minute ago, I think the worst decision you can make as a young professional is pursuing a career for the wrong reason. Either because you think this is what your parents want you to do, or because all your friends are becoming doctors, so you want to become one too, but you hate the sight of blood and needles and you don't like dealing with people. Or you might also choose a career where you are making a good salary, but if it is a chore to drag yourself out of bed on a Monday morning, and by the end of the week, you can't wait until it's Friday, then then definitely you are in the wrong career. So I truly believe that with the options that young people have today, uh, social media, access to technology and information, you can truly do whatever you like and success would come. Now, it is not as easy as it is for some as it is for others. I know there are families where a young person needs to be earning money from a young age because there are financial responsibilities. And in this case, I would say still find an hour a day to carve out that space to pursue something you really enjoy, something that you are good at, and I think success will come in time. I have always viewed my role in the energy industry as one that supports people, supports communities, and supports our country in meeting its day-to-day energy needs. And importantly, for an economy like Trinidad and Tobago, the energy sector is a key driver of our relative economic prosperity. So I'm really, truly proud to play a part in major projects that support this economic development. And now, assuming that you do genuinely love the energy industry, what advice can I give? I think it starts with doing a bit of SWOT analysis on yourself. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Do you like working with customers? And then you should be more on the downstream retail side of the business or, 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 or trading. Uh, do you like consistency and predictability and want to be doing more routine activities and there are probably rules and operations that fit your profile? Similarly, are you hands-on and maybe maintenance? Add to that the host of roles that support the energy business from finance to legal to government and corporate relations. I think there are a host of roles in the energy industry and whatever you are good at and whatever you like to do, I think there's a place for you. Now, it's no secret, though, that opportunities in the local energy sector are not as prevalent as they once were when, for example, I was coming out of the industry, coming out of university into the industry in in about 2002. And that is due to several reasons. Um, You have the fact that Trinidad is really a maturing hydrocarbon province. We have been producing hydrocarbons for over a century, compared to Guyana, who just started last year and is set to grow exponentially. And there are a number of factors, such as the prices of commodities, which impact where companies invest. And then on top of that, you have the energy transition. So I know it's very difficult for young people to get opportunities in the sector today, but I think there are things you can do to get in the industry, even if you're in a part of the industry you want to move to somewhere else, for example, from oil to gas or to renewables, or another segment of the value chain, such as midstream to upstream. There are some things that you can do and which are in your control. So let me break it up into a few quick practical tips, starting, of course, with education and work experience. 
One of the questions I always get asked is what renewable energy degree or course did I study to be able to lead the solar project in Trinidad? And the answer is I didn't study anything. But I did spend countless hours researching on the internet and talking to colleagues who had experience. Of course, the best knowledge I got was on the job by actually working on the project itself. But I didn't take any formal course of study in the field. Now, that can't work for everyone. Uh, if you want to be a petrophysicist or geoscientist, you have to do a hardcore technical degree in that area. But other than that, I think you soon realize that for any uh, career, I think taking a first degree plus uh, a real appetite to learn can make you successful. Um, that appetite to learn is what we call a learner mindset, and it can help move your career in many directions. So take advantage of your technology that you have today. Spend less time on Facebook and probably more time reading LinkedIn articles. Uh, you don't have to go to borrow a book in a library like we used to do. Um, with a couple of clicks, you could have a PDF on your phone. So take advantage, young people, of all the technology that you have. Don't use not having a degree in that field as an excuse not to pursue a particular area of interest. The other part of the equation, of course, is, is work experience. And I would encourage you to try to connect with people who have experience in the field uh, so that you can get some experience of your own. And you'd be surprised that uh, a lot of senior executives are very amenable to, to sharing opportunities and sharing their knowledge. So try reaching out to them for a short 15 or half an hour, 15 minute or half an hour chat. Try to find an opportunity where you can volunteer or shadow someone who's working on a particular project, get an internship, even an unpaid internship if necessary, or working in an NGO, for example, just to get that experience under your belt in the field that you really like. And it makes you uncomfortable and you have to make yourself uncomfortable to grow. And it would take some lateral moves sometimes to prove your competency. And you know, if you think about what I did in my career, in my own journey from manufacturing to downstream and to midstream, upstream and a bit of renewables, I all had to, I, I had to take several lateral moves and, and it was uncomfortable at times. But be, be patient and, and don't be too hard on yourself. Now for a few of the, the softer points. One of them is language and I was fortunate to be in two organizations that had a Latin American reporting structure and because of that I had the opportunity to work in Mexico where I learned Spanish and I brought that back into, into my roles while in Trinidad. Now we boast in Trinidad of having an access, access to the Latin American market you know from, from Central America down to Argentina 420 million people speaking Spanish with 30 million just in Venezuela and 50 million in Colombia, both of them having their own energy industries. But how many of us in Trinidad could actually have a proper conversation in Spanish? So I want to appeal to your young listeners, immerse yourself in a language, read a, a book in a foreign language, watch that movie in a foreign language. Because maybe you want to move to a renewable or tech firm in Europe, in Germany, Netherlands, uh, Spain, Italy. And I think language would give you that, that, that serious advantage over others. The other point I wanted to talk about was really around technology, social media and, and digital transformation, which I, which I touched on earlier. Mastery of this area is very important. We are seeing 
for example, robots on platforms, drones doing surveys, we're seeing work permits being processed digitally. They're digital twins of facilities now. And all industries, especially the energy industry, will require experts in, in technology and, and digital transformation. So learn as much in this area as you can. And of course, a command of social media, creating your own content and getting it out there, writing your own articles on LinkedIn, etc. These are all important uh, tools for the future. Two softer areas I want to touch on. One is um, you know, getting involved and giving back to the community. In my own role, I try to give back as much as I could to my to my alumni, to my community, uh, working with various organizations, and recently with young people across the Caribbean working alongside the UN Sustainable Development Goal team. And I encourage us as young people who grow in a career, do not forget to look back. And, and try to pull up the others behind you. That's the only way we can grow as a country, as a region. And also included in that, I think diversity and inclusion are important values to have. Uh, for me, I have a young daughter and I want to see more girls and women in, in science uh, working in a multinational company. I also want to see the faces in the boardroom more representative of the countries in which we operate. And I think Regardless of where you land in, 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 in this world, we all have a responsibility as Caribbean people to give something back to our region. So, so this is an important value I think you should have and always keep this in mind as you go forward in your career. The last one is something we've heard a lot about since the start of the pandemic, and that's mental health. Don't underestimate the importance of your own mental health uh, this has been a taboo subject in the past. You didn't want to speak about feeling mentally unwell because, you know, people would think you would be uh, not capable of doing your job if you were under stress. I think today the tables have turned and, and really good organizations and leaders are saying that if you do have an issue, please take some time off and also let us as an organization help you. Behind our jobs, we're all real people with real world problems. So please feel free to ask for help at any time you need it. Um, look after yourself and look after your colleagues. So always keep mental health at the forefront. Thanks, Vikash. I think um, you gave our listeners a lot of great advice. They're considering, you know, ways or and approaches to really get involved in the sector and, you know, really setting that, that long-term vision and assessing the different roles because, you know, our sector is evolving so much. You know, apart from the oil and gas aspect, there's the renewables aspect that's starting to come to play as well as, you know, a greater focus on, on climate adaptation as well too. So you know, the sector is growing in terms of different types of rules and responsibilities. Well, you know, really transforming us into a more climate-conscious uh, industry and sector. And, you know, uh, I'll be on that thought, you know, of transformation. I just want to get your thoughts on the energy transition because, you know, there's a big um, buzzword that's, that's a lot of, that is in a lot of conversations, you know, when we talk about the energy sector and the industry. And, you know, I want to get your thoughts on in terms of Trinidad and Tobago, where you see that balance happening. 
Actually, this is a very important topic and I'm glad that you raised it. Firstly, I think it is key to recognize that life as we know it cannot exist without oil and gas. From the fuel in our cars, planes, ships, to the plastics we use in the healthcare industry, to power generation in many parts of the world, this still comes from hydrocarbons. That, that is a fact. So the energy transition and limiting the global temperature rise to within 1.5 degrees Celsius, which, by the way, is something that is absolutely necessary. It is, it is not something, however, that can simply be accomplished by switching off oil and gas production tomorrow. Today, renewables make up just a small portion of our energy supply. And while they continue to grow, and while we ensure that the investments are made into these new technologies, oil and more so gas will have an important role for several decades to come. But looking internationally before we start talking regionally and locally, we see developed countries like Denmark banning new oil and gas exploration licenses. And you're seeing in parts of Europe, there are activists stating that new oil fields should not be developed. And, and yes, that may be possible in wealthy developed nations. But if you look right next door in Guyana, that just started oil production last year and has 10 billion barrels of crude oil that will take decades more to produce and will require plenty more wells to be drilled or, or similarly in Suriname or even in Trinidad and Tobago. Do you stop producing hydrocarbons and stop issuing new licenses? I don't think this is the wisest decision for developing countries, which by the way, Guyana, Suriname and Trinidad are all recognized as small island developing states. And you know, I recently spoke to a group of young uh, UWI students from across the region, and one of them, a trainee like me, said to her Guyanese colleague that Ghana should stop oil and gas production and focus instead on renewable energy. And that prompted some good discussion in the group, as you could imagine. And, you know, Trinidad has enjoyed a status as the most prosperous Caribbean island from the quality of life that we have, the amenities, the educational opportunities, subsidized electricity. So, so how can we turn around and say to our neighbors in Guyana that they can't have the same chance for their own economic development? And I think developing countries in Africa, in Latin America, and especially as here in the Caribbean, uh, we need to maximize the economic life of our resources remaining. But it needs to be done in a balanced and responsible way where we do it safely, where we minimize the carbon intensity of our operations, and where we, where we do it with, with policy support from the government. Now, imagine if you wake up tomorrow and there was no natural gas flowing in Trinidad. Firstly, the power shuts off. There's no internet. There's no school because yet we, we don't have renewable energy installed. Uh, and even if you did, the, the sun doesn't shine, you know, 24 hours a day and the wind doesn't blow all day. So you do need a backup of natural gas supply, unless of course you had expensive batteries, but but let's think for now, we, we don't. So the power shuts off in the short term, eventually government's income would dry up. There'd be no royalties and taxes from the multinationals operating upstream or even the downstream petrochemical companies and other sectors of the economy would eventually uh, lose funding. So like health, national security, uh, the funds would dry up and, and this leads to more problems in society, job loss, etc. So, so, you know, countries can't simply switch off and developing countries like ours can't switch off. But instead, we need to manage this transition collaboratively with the industry with government and importantly with the end users and customers like us 
who generate that demand for hydrocarbons. And looking regionally, we see there are some countries who have more aggressive renewable energy targets. For example, Barbados by 2030 has pledged to become net zero. But but countries like Barbados and, and Jamaica still depend on imported fuel oil and diesel for, for power production, unlike Trinidad, which is 100% powered by natural gas, which is which is less carbon intensive than oil. So there are differences within the region, but it's all driven by the different energy mixes that we have in, in our economies. So I think what we need to take away is that oil and gas will be here for a, a, a long while and continuing to drive the economy of many developing nations, including the Caribbean. But all important energy transition needs to be carefully managed. It needs to be collaborative and it needs to be supported by adequate policy as well. Vikash, I have to agree with your training in terms of balance that is required locally, given, you know, how, as most people should be aware of, you know, we are a gas-based economy more than even our oil. And, you know, definitely our transition will look different. And, you know, hearing how, you know, it is going to require a great effort from all stakeholders industry, uh, regulators from our government, and, you know, we can only hope to be part of, of, of that process as well, too, you know, really helping the transformation required for, for Trinidad's energy sector, and also meeting the energy needs of our country that has depended on a legacy system for so long. This talk about energy transition would not have probably been pushed as much without the COP26 conference that is happening right now this week and you know just to hear your thoughts what would you like to see from COP26 that really comes out or what are you hoping that will stand out as, as something good from the conference? So, so I really hope that in 10 years your listeners could look back at my testimony here today and say that in 2021 that guy was really talking sense but 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 seriously what can we expect not just from COP26 happening at the time of this recording but going forward in years to come, as as the as the planet works on a path to limit the global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, so taking into consideration everything we just talked about regarding the fact that oil and gas will be around for some time, the first thing I think we would like to see from governments is really to lead the charge when it comes to not only shaping demand, but ensuring that the right investment climate is in place, and this can only be done with policy. For example, on the demand side, we need to see hard targets around the phasing out of diesel, for example, or a data around the transition to electric cars, so that the industry can put plans in place from now to be ready for that change. So the right policy framework needs to be in place by governments, and their role is key to shape demand. Secondly, as we stand, national promises are insufficient. So we are on course for greater than two degrees Celsius temperature rise by the end of the century, and clearly deeper cuts need to be made. Developed countries are responsible for almost 80% of all emissions, and therefore we need to see deeper cuts by the top emitters. China, I think, is around 30%. The USA is around 15%, and these two countries alone just make up uh, make up just under half of all emissions. 
Thirdly, a sector-by-sector approach is needed for global industries like aviation and shipping when you think about it. You can't have one country stating that we will only use biofuels for planes or methanol or LNG for ships by year X and another country by year Y. As an international airline or shipping company, how do you manage various fuels in your portfolio in different planes and different ships on different days? So there needs to be a global instead of a national approach in some cases. The fourth item I think is important is really to see a functioning mechanism globally to trade carbon credits. And lastly, I think the most important one is that the finance needs to be in place from the developed nations, from the G7, the G20 nations, to the developing world for not only climate mitigation and climate adaptation, but really for disaster relief for the extreme weather events that we are seeing today, like hurricanes and flooding, especially in the Caribbean. Well, Vikash, thanks for your thoughts on you know COP26. You know, as we about to conclude our conversation uh, on behalf of the Beyond Direct team, the youth government of Trinidad and Tobago, and our, our loyal listeners, I would like to thank you for being a guest on our show, kicking off episode one of season two. And we look forward to hearing from you, you know, and seeing you also contributing. Like you mentioned earlier in our episode, and a lot of people within the industry, especially for young people, we should really advocate for them. Reach out to them, and I am pretty sure that, you know, all young people can find you on LinkedIn. And they can reach out to you, and you'll be willing to help them. So, Vikash, thanks so much once again. And I'd like to thank all loyal listeners once again for listening to us. And look out for episode two. You never know who will be popping on Beyond the Rake episode two. In season two, we have a lot of surprises, surprise guests to show up. So hope you enjoy it and hope you enjoy this episode. And until next time, stay safe.